We've seen so far in this series, number one, that everything that we're considering comes from the Bible. The Bible is our single source of reliable, authoritative truth, a book without error. Because although it was written down by men, they only did so as they were moved and directed, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is God's breathed out word. We've seen that the Bible confronts us with the reality of sin, that we are born sinful. And those sinful natures make us to be the enemy of God, a God who is altogether holy and righteous. And this issue of our sin is by far and away our biggest problem. The living out of our self-centered sinful natures is the explanation for all the wickedness and corruption and deceit and exploitation and grief and pain and anguish that we experience and witness in this world. It's because men and women are sinful. And of course, one of the symptoms of our sin is that in our sin, we refuse to accept any of this as being the truth. Especially when the Bible goes on to say that what we're doing is living in rebellion against God, living in transgression against all that God requires, and that because of that, we've placed ourselves under his condemnation. Our sinful nature is just dismiss that out of hand but the bible insists that indeed the wages of sin is death a terrible punishment that all of us are facing now of course people don't mind it too much if you suggest that sin lies behind many of their struggles and difficulties and that it's the cause of many of the heartaches and griefs that they'll experience which it is but to go on and suggest that the Bible describes them as wicked and unrighteous and undeserving of heaven, well, now you've just gone too far. But you see, it's because that is our situation that God has gone to the lengths that he's gone to to secure our salvation for us. This is why the message of salvation in Jesus Christ is such good news. Our condition is so bad that it's way beyond pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. There are no bootstraps strong enough. And what God does for us is way beyond just patching things up for us to make our lives easier or better than they were before. From an earthly perspective, Speak to the believers in Sri Lanka and ask them if their lives are easier or better than they were before from a worldly perspective. That's not what's promised in the Bible. That's not at the heart of being a Christian. And so severe is our plight before this holy God that our only hope is that he will do something for us about our sin on our behalf. And praise God he has exactly what he's done only God can save us and that's why Jesus came into the world why because God so loved the world that he gave 
That's the gospel. And he did so because it pleased him to do it. And he decreed that he would. And because he cannot deny his own nature, he fulfilled that which he has decreed and promised. And the second person of the Godhead became human flesh. One person with two natures. Fully God and fully man. And he lived a perfect life in complete submission to his father and in complete obedience to the law. And this God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, would secure for sinners the salvation that they need. Our sins and the guilt and condemnation that go with it placed upon him and paid by him in his sufferings and death on the cross. And his perfect righteousness, his perfect rightness before God makes the believer right before God because we receive his rightness as being our own. And having died, the mighty conqueror over death and the grave rose. And in his resurrection life, we see the guarantee that we too are now raised to newness of life and will one day be raised again, fully as he was to newness of life in him. So God has done in Jesus Christ everything that we need in order to be saved from our sins, saved from his judgment, to be given a complete new start and new life. But then we have to consider, don't we, how is it that God brings us as sinners into the reality of that salvation? How do I become someone who knows that I am saved? Well, this happens through a combination of the truths of the gospel and the working and power of his Holy Spirit. And God breathes new life into the cold and deadness of your sinful heart. If you're a Christian, that's what he did to you. He awakened you to the reality of these truths and he called you to himself. And in your newness of life and with a new heart and a renewed mind, you understood and now you see and now you hear and you responded to that call. You could not help but respond. How can you refuse so great a calling when you hear that call and you come? Because you've been born again and God has granted you the gift of faith so that you don't only know that this is the truth but you respond to that truth and you believe and you trust in Christ in all that Christ has done and in everything that God has promised in him and through him. And from that moment, everything changed, didn't it? It has to. You're not your own anymore. You belong to him. Well, that's a brief overview of the first seven messages in this series. And just let me, re let me remind you, if you've missed any of them, uh, they're available on the website. Let me also remind you, something you might find helpful. Anytime we have 
stuff coming up on the screen behind me and there are Bible references. That's all on the website too. Where you click on the page to listen to the sermon, just underneath there, you'll see it says sermon notes. And if you want the Bible references, they're there. Look them up, read them through again if you need to. Go back to the word of God again if you need to, on your own. I really encourage you to do that. Go back to the word of God again and see that these things are so. It's all available for you to dig into the Bible for yourself. Well, going back to the topic of our lives changing when we come to Christ as our saviour, one of the necessary elements in that change, something that is there right from the very beginning of it all, is something that the Bible calls repentance. Right from the very start. As God brings about this new birth within us, so that we can hear God's call, and as he grants us faith to trust in Christ, there's something else going on, hand in hand with that, running alongside it, if you will. The Bible teacher, uh, Wayne Grudem, who wrote a, a systematic theology through the teaching of the Bible, um, he defines it like this, and I think it's quite a helpful definition that he gives. Repentance, he says, first of all, is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. But it doesn't end there. It's a renouncing of sin and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. So there's three parts to it there, isn't there? A heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of sin, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. It is a stopping from the direction you're going in, a complete turning around, leaving behind what you were walking towards, and now walking in the opposite direction following Christ. It's often described in that way too. The primary reason for trusting in Christ the primary reason for trusting in Christ is not because you think he's going to make your earthly existence better than it was before. He might. Frequently, he does not. It's not your primary reason for coming to Christ. At least I hope it isn't. The primary reason for trusting in Christ is because he is the only one who can offer you means of escape from sin and judgment and offer you a permanent alternative. And now you know that you need both of these things. You need both a means of escape and you need a permanent alternative to living a life that went after sin. And so you turn from your sins to Christ. You turn from following the path of sin to the path of following Christ. You leave sin's dominion and you place yourself under the rule of Christ. Have you seen a sprinter on the starting blocks in athletics? There are two blocks, one for each foot. 
and they kick off against those blocks. There are, if you like, two blocks upon which sinners place their feet in order to begin their Christian walk as a Christian man or woman or young person. One block is called faith and the other block is called repentance. The starting blocks to the Christian life are faith and repentance. The only difference is that unlike the athlete, you don't leave the blocks behind. You take them with you and you use them for every single step. Faith and repentance, faith and repentance, faith and repentance. And off you go, following Christ. The Bible teacher John Murray, in his excellent book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, and if you've never read it, you must. He describes the Christian as exercising, call it either penitent faith or believing repentance. But you cannot have the one without the other. It's penitent faith and believing repentance, he says. The two go hand in hand. Genuine faith is always accompanied by repentance. And repentance is always the response of saving faith. Always. Uh, Wayne Grudem expands a little bit further in, in his book. He says this, Repentance is an intellectual understanding that sin is wrong. You do need that. It's an emotional approval of the teaching of scripture regarding sin, a sorrow for sin and a hatred of it and a personal decision to turn from it. This renouncing of sin, a decision of the will to forsake it and to lead a life of obedience to Christ instead. Now that that is the work that God does in you, in bringing you to new birth. This is all the work of God. You can't, you can't produce this in yourself on your own. This is the outworking of God's truth and spirit within you as he draws you to himself. So all of this is taking place as God brings new spiritual birth and life and sight and hearing and understanding to you who once were dead in your sins. As this new heart and nature spring into life within you, this is what God produces in you. And so intricately linked are faith and repentance. How do, you, how do you split them? We think about your own conversion experience. You can't really split them, can you? Trusting in Christ and repenting of your sins probably doesn't really serve any meaningful purpose to try and separate the two, really, in that sense. Well, let's take as a bit of a guide that definition that Wayne Grudem used, which I think is very helpful by no means the only way to think about this topic, but I think it'll be helpful for us this morning. Let's use that definition that he used and, and think about those three constituent 
constituent parts that he mentioned. The first was a heartfelt sorrow for sin. Now, sorrow is always produced by something. Sorrow is always the result of something. Sorrow is always a response to something. Can you think of a time when you were overcome by sorrow? Well, there's been people in our news headlines who right now are overcome by sorrow because of particular things that have happened, realities in their lives. The death of a loved one. Maybe you've known the sorrow of the betrayal of someone who you trusted. Whatever it was, that sorrow was a response to something that was real. The emotion was in response to a particular reality. And it was as that reality, as that truth dawned upon you that the sorrow came. You see, being grieved over your sin is a mark of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not feeling sorrow for yourself because of your sin. It's not an inward-looking sorrow. It is a Godward-looking sorrow. Sorrow because of what sin has done to you, yes, but not for selfish reasons, but because of what that means to God. It's possible for men and women to lament what has become of them in this life. It's possible for men and women to lament what might have been, but be thinking only of themselves and have no thought for God. That's not repentance. True repentance always has God in view not yourself. Now we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, which was really helpful. Let me just remind you of those main verses where Paul speaks about the repentance that he witnessed in the people in the church in Corinth. I rejoice, Paul says, not that you were made sorry, Because that's not enough. Feeling sorry is not enough. But, he says, that your sorrow led to repentance. Because repentance actually produces something in you. It makes you do something. It produces a reaction and an action. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Whereas the sorrow of the world just produces death. There are loads of people out there feeling sorry. But they're not repentant. And they're still dead in their sins. You sorrowed, said Paul, in a godly manner. Yours was the sorrow that God is looking for. Yours is the sorrow that God needs to see. A grief over sin, but more than that, 
a turning away from it, seeing the wrongness of it, seeing that it's in me. If you want to know all the blessings that God has ready for those for whom Christ died, you must turn to him in repentance from your sin. Listen to King David in Psalm 51. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me against you, speaking to God, against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now there is a very real recognition of the problem and the issue. It's me and it's my sin before you, a holy God. That's the issue. And David is a broken man before God because of it. That's repentance. That's the heartfelt sorrow that Grudem's talking about. And David in that psalm is pleading for the Lord to renew him and change him and to enable him to go the other way. Because that's repentance. In the Old Testament, there's that story of Jacob and Esau, the two twins. And Esau, the firstborn, sells his birthright to his brother, Jacob. And later, Esau bitterly regrets what he's done and wishes that he could reverse it all and put it back again. And we read of him in Hebrews chapter 12, when afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Oh, there was much sorrow in Esau, but there was no godly sorrow. There was sorrow only for himself and what he'd done to himself. There was no confession of his sin. There was no turning in him. Even tears don't necessarily equal repentance. It's a heartfelt sorrow for sin, my sin, before you, the holy God. And repentance must then be a renouncing of sin, a doing away with sin. When God brings true faith and repentance to the sinner, the words of Paul in Romans chapter 6 resonate loud and clear. In Romans 6, we have a summary of everything that Wayne Grudem means when he speaks of renouncing sin. In one who's been born again and who's had their heart and mind renewed, they find that they're in complete agreement with the apostle in what he writes in that chapter. Let me give you a few selected highlights from Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How can we who died to sin live in it any longer? 
just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Our old sinful self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now the repentant heart all the way through this is saying yes, yes, yes. The death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Yes, says the repentant heart, that's me. And alive to God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Yes, says the repentant heart, that's me. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. Don't present your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your bodies as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, the man or woman who's been born again and has faith and repentance, their hearts are rejoicing in these truths. Aren't they? This is you as a Christian believer. What shall we say then? Shall we sin? Because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You see, when there's been true repentance, there is a complete about turn when it comes to sin. Does that describe you? Not that you become sinless, of course. Not yet. The day is coming when Christ returns. It will all be resolved completely. But in Christ... You have firmly set yourself against sin. And also in those verses, there are references which lead us to the third phrase in Grudem's definition. The renouncing of sin isn't just a theoretical thing. It shapes and changes your life. Because he talks about living a life that's lived to God. Presenting yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. Instruments of righteousness, set free from sin, slaves of righteousness and so on. And so the third point is a sincere commitment to forsake sin and walk in obedience to Christ. This is repentance. It's all of this. Listen to Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts let him return to the Lord who will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon the exhortation in the New Testament is that you bear fruits worthy of repentance if you're a believer 
the, the outworking of repentance in your life should be clear and obvious to all. Acts 26 in the preaching that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. Repentance produces a change in you. Faith and repentance produce this change. And if the change isn't there, well, I'm sorry, your profession of faith, huge question mark. A great example of a repentant man is Zacchaeus. Remember him? The cheating, thieving tax collector. And salvation, we read, came to his house the day he met Christ. Was he a repentant man? No doubt about it, is there? Immediately, his life was turned right around. And out he went to all of the people who he'd cheated and stolen from. His heart seeking to make reparation for all the wrong he'd done. Here's a man who's turned from his sin and is following Christ. And it's clear and obvious to everybody. Now, his was perhaps a rather more extreme sin that everybody was aware of in that town compared to maybe you or I. But the, the principle is exactly the same. You will find some that teach that repentance doesn't need to be a consideration in conversion. That conversion is only a matter of faith in Christ, they say. Repentance can come later, they say. Really? Not reading the same Bible I am then. Faith and repentance clearly go together in the Bible. Acts chapter 20 verse 21. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. They go together. Jesus actually makes it clear that repentance is part of saving faith. Because he says, I tell you, Luke 13... Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You're still in your sins if you haven't repented. It's part of your conversion experience. Read the Gospels and you'll discover that although Jesus frequently mentions faith in his conversations with people, he mentions faith an awful lot. You'd expect him to. Yet, when the Gospel writers describe his teaching ministry... What they most frequently recall is that he went about preaching repentance. Because that's what he did. And this surely must be the ongoing spirit of the Christian. Repentance isn't something that you look back on that you did 35 years ago. I hope you realise that. You can't say, oh I repented of my sin when I came to Christ 35 years ago. I've done repentance. Repentance over sin is what continues to mark you out in a fallen world. Remember what Grudem said? Repentance is an intellectual understanding that sin is wrong. Is that something that you left behind when you were converted? No. He says repentance is an emotional approval of the teaching of Scripture regarding sin, a sorrow for sin and a hatred of it. Is that something you left behind 35 years ago when you were saved? No. He says repentance is a personal decision to turn from sin 
and to forsake it and to lead a life of obedience to Christ. Is that something you left behind 35 years ago? No, that's you today, right now, as a Christian man or woman. This surely is the daily heartfelt desire of every Christian believer. Here's a question as we draw to a close. What is it that produces the biggest distinction between you and those around you who don't know Christ? What produces the biggest distinction? Surely it's that you are someone who has repented of sin, isn't it? Now, your colleagues and neighbours and friends see very little, if anything, of what you do when you come to church, do they? They don't see any of that. Now, I would hope that they would see acts of kindness in you. But it's possible in the name of religion to do acts of kindness, to appear morally upright, to perform what might be understood as religious duties and yet at the same time be completely immersed in any and every sin just like everybody else. It's possible. So in that kind of person, religion has just been like a veneer that's been laid over the top as a facade but underneath, nothing's changed. I've met people like that. Have you? Let's make sure we're not like that. You see, what will make the biggest impact on the unsaved is when one who's truly been born again and who truly believes in Christ by faith turns away from all of their sin and pursues righteousness. That's what they'll notice. That's what they'll see. No bad language. Never seen drunk at the office parties. No sex before marriage. Not living together outside of marriage. Complete honesty and integrity in the workplace. The Apostle Peter calls it not running with them in the same flood of dissipation. And they will think, you're strange. Won't they? Don't they? Because you live a life of ongoing faith and repentance from sin. That's what people will notice. That's what will stand out. Oh, that the Lord would cause us to sorrow as we should over our sin. That we might rejoice more fervently in Christ and cling to him more. Oh, that we would turn more gladly and readily from all of our sins. Well, some of you I think, yeah, well, how do I do that? Practically, how do I do that? Well, let me give you a starter. I'll give you a starter for 10. The Ten Commandments. There's your starter for 10. Start there. 
If not, but there's a great place to start. When did you last pause to consider the Ten Commandments? Could you even recite them? Could you name all ten and get them in the right order? Could you? Are there any idols in your life that keep you from giving God first place? There's a good place to begin. Do you obey God's command regarding the Sabbath day? Students, big exam season approaching. Will you do all your work in six days? each week and use each Sabbath day as he commands you to use it it's his command I haven't made it up remember that Jesus taught that murder and adultery are judged by him not just in terms of physical actions but what's going on inside our hearts that he knows all about are we repentant do you ever steal? Well, of course not. Not even time from your employer? Your expenses and tax returns 100% watertight? Do you never have any issue regarding covetousness? What, never? Are you in full control of your speech about your neighbour, as we've considered recently in 2 Timothy? It's all there in the Ten Commandments, you know. Why don't you start there? It's a good place to begin. Prayerfully, humbly, ask your Heavenly Father to show you your sins that you might walk in faith and repentance before him. God commands all people everywhere to repent. And it begins with you and me let's just pray have mercy upon me O God according to your loving kindness according to the multitude of your tender mercies blot out my transgressions Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Lord, teach us the truths of this prayer. Change us 
keep on changing us, renewing us, that we might walk with you as we ought to walk. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.